And I want to direct your attention to the text that has launched our series on biblical discernment. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul's primary prayer request for individual believers and for the collective church in Philippi. This is his primary aim, his primary desire for God's people. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And this I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now notice the connection between love and knowledge. Love and judgment. Love and discernment. It's not one over the other. It's both. He's not choosing, he's not saying choose love or choose knowledge. He's not saying choose love or choose discernment. Paul says, This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Of all the things that Paul could have prayed for, for this church in Philippi, he prays that their love would abound in knowledge and in judgment. Now, in light of recent comments made by Pastor Alistair Begg, that have surfaced online and set the internet on fire, especially among the Christian community, I thought it would be appropriate in our Sunday evening series on biblical discernment to think about the question that has passionately stirred the evangelical waters over the last several weeks. And the question that I am referring to is, should Bible-believing born-again Christians attend a wedding other than a traditional wedding between one biological male and one biological female? Should a true Christian attend a wedding of a person or persons who will identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or any other alphabet letter that is against God's created order? If a close friend, employee, employer, fellow colleague, or neighbor identifies as LGBTQ and they invite you to attend their wedding ceremony, should you go? If a son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter, aunt, uncle, parent, grandparent, or cousin identifies as homosexual or transgender, and he, she, they, or them invite you to come to their wedding and sincerely tells you that it would mean the world to them if you would be there, would you consider attending? That's the question at hand. Should Christians attend a wedding consisting of two men or two women so they don't offend the ones who invited them? Should Christians strive to support their friends and family members 
who identify as LGBTQ by way of showing the love of Christ? Or should Christians refuse to go to such an event and risk being regarded as hateful, judgmental, critical, and unloving? Should Christians let others know that they personally don't approve of such marriages, yet go to the wedding anyway, bringing the couple a gift by way of keeping the peace? Or should Christians decline the invitation? Well, let me begin by stating that the fact that we even have to give two seconds to think about an appropriate answer to this question shows how far we have strayed from the obvious truths and principles of God's Word. Uh, the fact that many believers could not or would not give a quick, solid, biblical answer when this question first started buzzing around online reveals how undiscerning Christian people have become in our nation. And I can tell you that I was personally shocked and surprised at how many sincere, God-fearing, faithful believers doubtfully responded to the question by saying, well, I don't know. I mean, if you had a family member, surely you wouldn't want to offend. Surely you would do everything possible to show love to them, right? The fact that they said that showed me how conformed we are to this world's way of thinking. And the fact that many people among the scope of Christendom were caught off guard by this question showed me how needful it is for me as a pastor to keep preaching sermons on biblical discernment. With emotionally sensitive topics being pushed in our face daily through the television, the radio, social media, politicians, schools, and acquaintances, with more and more Christian leaders and professing Christians bowing to the rainbow image, and with Satan, our enemy, whispering the same question in our ears that he whispered in the ear of Eve, namely, did God really say? We need more than ever to be ready to give the world a straightforward, humble answer wrapped in Christ-like love and courage regarding what we will do as it relates to our associations with the sins of the LGBTQ community. Well, I do not agree with the advice Pastor Alistair Begg gave in regards to the question at hand, I do believe the most helpful aspect about his comments has been the fact that it has opened the door wide for God's people to search the Scriptures and think through this issue again so that we might know what we believe and why we believe it. And listen, I'm convinced that this question of associating with a LGBTQ wedding is not a potential if situation, but a probable when situation. I'm persuaded that for most of us in this room, it's not a matter of if we will eventually be personally invited to such a wedding by somebody that we know, but when we will eventually be invited to such a wedding. As our culture strays farther and farther away from God, 
as our culture strays farther and farther away from God's authoritative word, it's only a matter of time until you are personally invited to attend a wedding, a get-together, or a celebration of some sort that seeks to identify or seeks to honor those who identify as LGBTQ. And for some of you, such an invite has already taken place in your life. So the question again is, should Christians attend a LGBTQ wedding? Should you personally attend a wedding or any event, for that matter, that unashamedly embraces unbiblical beliefs and practices? How do we answer the question? Where do we turn for wisdom? How do we reason this out? Do we turn to Dr. Phil? Uh, Do we look to Oprah? Do we make a decision based on what everyone else is doing? Do we depend upon our feelings to give us a proper answer? Should we reason this out by what others will think of us? This is where the rubber meets the road. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? How can we know what God would have us to do? What's the answer? Well, the answer is we turn to the perfect, pure, preserved, authoritative voice of God. When pressed with any question in life, we must allow the truths and principles of God's Word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In searching for answers in life, we should not follow our heart like Disney encourages us to do. We should not let our conscience alone be our guide, as Jiminy Cricket would tell us to do. We must not let our opinions and feelings or the opinions and feelings of others to be our guiding influence. In our desire to know what the will of God is for our life, listen, we must, we must, we must believe that God's Word is divine and that it alone is to be our final rule for faith and practice. We must read and study God's Word in the light of it being sufficient to lead us and guide us, and we must then obey God's Word as if it is God's holy will. I recall a pastor preaching a sermon on this recently. If we want to do God's will... We must strive to take heed to God's word. If we want to be useful in God's kingdom, if we want to be a bright and burning light, if we want to be filled with love and discernment at the same time, we must follow God's ways. So how do we take heed to God's word with the question at hand? What is the right answer? Should Christians attend LGBTQ weddings? Well, in our reasoning it out biblically, we need to ask and think through the following questions, permitting God to answer the question for us. So let me give you several questions. Question number one. This is what we need to ask. What does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about gender? And then connected with this question are other questions that need to be asked. 
Does God support the idea that there are a limitless number of genders that we can choose from? Is gender a neutral concept to God? Do we find anything in the Bible of God approving of a biological man believing himself to be a woman or vice versa? If we are honest with the scriptures, we will see that the clear answers to these questions are no, no, and no. God does not support the foolish idea that there are more than a hundred gender identities we can choose from. Gender is not a neutral concept to God, and nowhere in Scripture do we find God approving of those He fearfully and wonderfully made to be male, pretending to be females, and those He has fearfully and wonderfully created to be female, pretending to be males. In fact, what we find is God establishing the fact in Genesis 1.27 that He created man in His own image. In the image of God created He Him, male and female created He them. That's it. The Bible from the beginning establishes only two genders. There are those who are born male and those who are born female. We also find in our Bibles that God does not want men to wear that which pertains to a woman and He does not want the woman to wear that which pertains to a man. Throughout the Scriptures, we find that God expects men to act like men and women to act like women. In the Bible, we find God establishing certain male roles and responsibilities for men and certain female roles and responsibilities for women. So that being said, to attend a wedding ceremony where individuals are rebelling against God's created order and pretending that God never established such truths is to say by your actions that God really doesn't care about what gender is and you don't really care about what God says about gender as well. To go to a wedding where a person is mocking God is to join in the mockery of God's authoritative word. So that's question number one. What does God say about gender? And is it clear? Question number two. How does God define marriage? How does God define marriage? I don't care about how our culture defines marriage. We need to ask the question regarding how God defines marriage. And turning to Genesis 2, 21 through 24, we have the answer. The Bible says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And then in Matthew 19, verses 5 and 6, in quoting these exact words from Genesis, we read that Jesus affirms marriage to be the union of a biological male and a biological female. Marriage is between one man and one woman. 
Anything other than that is a mirage and not marriage. So to attend something called a wedding or marriage when it is not recognized as a wedding or marriage by God is affirming something that is not a marriage at all. To attend such a mirage is affirming something that is a perversion of God's created order. To attend something that God calls an abomination is to join yourself with such an abomination. The word of God is clear. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So the question is, why would you want to associate with that which God despises and that which God promises to judge. What are you going to do if you choose to go to an LGBTQ wedding and the one officiating says, does anyone here know of any reason why these two should not be married? What are you going to do if they start quoting Bible verses that affirms that God unquestionably supports their union in marriage? Are you going to stand up and speak against it? Are you going to let God's word be mocked in your presence? Are you going to pretend that such truths don't matter for the sake of not offending people? In seeking to find a biblical answer that will help us answer this question as to whether we should support a, quote, wedding that is approved by our culture and disapproved by God, we need to ask this second question, which is, how does God Define marriage. And then the third question that is needful to ask is, how did Jesus relate to sinners when he was here on earth? How did Jesus relate to sinners? Now, our culture wants us to believe that Jesus gets us. That's the commercial floating around. He gets us. We are being fed the lie that Jesus would never hurt anyone's feelings and Jesus always accepted everyone exactly how they wanted to live. So the question we need to ask is, can we prove such accusations about Jesus to be true from Scripture? Does the biblical Jesus, notice my phrasing there, does the biblical Jesus ever support people's immoral behavior? Does the biblical Jesus ever accept the sinful lifestyles of those who were knowingly living contrary to God's word? Did the true Christ, the true Messiah, ever lay down his biblical conviction so that he would not hurt people's feelings? In the Gospels, do we find Jesus making decisions that centered around the feelings of others? Or did Jesus make decisions that centered around pleasing the Father and doing His will? If you know your Bibles, you know that the answers to these specific questions are obvious. 
Nowhere do we read of Jesus associating with known sinful deeds that were displeasing to the Father. Now, he did eat with publican and sinners, but he never celebrated or indifferently supported them in their sin. There's a great difference between sitting down with someone who is living contrary to the ways of God for a meal with the desire to talk to them about their soul and attending a ceremony that is blatantly sinful. Now make no mistake, Jesus was kind to demon-possessed people. Jesus was very gracious to prostitutes and Pharisees and tax collectors and adulterous men and women, but He never set aside living by the truths of God's Word as it related to His own purity and holiness so that He might show love to others. He never knowingly went against the plain truth of Scripture so that He might win others to Himself. So, if we would be Christ-like, it's obvious then that we need to strive to let Christ's example be our guiding influence in our decision-making process. That's question number three. How did Jesus relate to sinners? What's the answer? Well, He loved them, but He did not join them in their sin. Jesus loved them, but He often reproved them in their sin. And then question number four. Question number four. How did Jesus associate with His physical family? How did Jesus associate with His physical family? Now, for some reason, many Christians willfully dismiss this straightforward, easy-to-understand truth that Jesus declares about our commitment to Him over family. I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 10. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. I'm surprised at how this specific point is often the game-changer for making various decisions in life. I can't tell you how many people uncertainly say regarding this issue, well... If I had a son or a daughter that was homosexual or transgender, I might have to think through it differently. I mean, if, if it was a family member of mine, I would need to be really careful not to offend. Really? Why? Why? Because family circumstances somehow make God's word null and void? Why are family members prioritized Overcommitment to Christ. This is usually the most emotionally pulled argument that is given that people can't come to find a firm answer on. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man against variance, at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. 
He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now these teachings of Jesus seem straightforward and very easy to understand. Jesus is establishing the fact that in order to be his disciple, we must love him more than anyone else, including our families. We must be more faithful to what he wants us to do than what our family members want us to do. And oftentimes, Jesus is saying, loving him in our own household, among our own families, often includes sacrifice and pain. It involves taking up a cross and being crucified. And then Luke chapter 8, 19 through 21. Luke chapter 8, 19 through 21. Then came him, then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Jesus, your physical family is outside the door and they want you. And Jesus makes a valid point by saying, okay, well, that's all fine and well, but who are my mother and my brethren? Who are my real family? And Jesus is saying in the text that my true family is my spiritual family. Jesus says my closest acquaintances are those who do the will of God, not those who belong to me by blood. So what do you do if you have a family member who wants you to attend something that is obviously displeasing in God's sight? What do you do? Here's what you do. You kindly look the family member in the eye and you say, I love you deeply, but I love Jesus more. You say, I love you but I cannot violate my own convictions. And I pray you would repent. I pray you would turn from your wicked ways and I pray you would find Jesus to be the only satisfaction for your soul. Oh, but pastor, that means that will cause strife and drama in the family. That means you might ruin future opportunities that witness. That means Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter are going to be problematic. They're going to be awkward. Well, so be it. You did not choose the war. The war chose you. And besides, is God not sovereign? Who's to say that all witnessing opportunities are lost? Ah, who's to say that? You don't know that. Oftentimes, when Christians speak the truth in love, when they stay true to their convictions and they show their true to commitment to Christ over family, it often presents opportunities for the lost world and family to see the reality of your faith. So what I am saying is, you must not make an idol of your physical family. The family first mentality floating around Christianity is not biblical. Family first, family first, family first, family first, family first, family first. No, I'm sorry. Yes, love your family. Don't neglect them. Provide for your own house lest you be an infidel. Yes and amen, that's Bible, but it's God first. 
Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then out of that, love others as yourself. Jesus did not have a family-first mentality. Jesus had a father-first mentality. Even as a young child. Don't you know that I'm to be about my father's business? Yes, even a young child. Now they are to respect and honor their father and mother. They are not to be disrespectful. But even a young child whose parents don't serve the Lord ought to love Christ more than their parents. That's Bible. Now some of you are so worried about pleasing your family that you're offending God. You think you're helping your family by putting them first when in reality you're hurting your testimony for Christ. And by the way, when you die, you're not going to give an account to your family members. You're going to give an account of your life to Christ. So when pressed with compromising situations, what you need to do is tell your family that you love them and you love them deeply and sincerely, but you will not be joining them in their sinful activities. You say, what does the pastor know about this? The pastor doesn't live in the world we live in. The pastor lives in this safe little bubble. He doesn't face the temptations we do. Let me tell you a story. A family member of mine wanted me to officiate his wedding several years back. And it came to my attention that they wanted the rehearsal dinner to be at a well-known chicken wing place where the female servants are known to be immodestly dressed. I won't name it. And having heard that was the plan. I graciously told this family member of mine getting married that I'm sorry, but I will not attend and I cannot attend. I said I cannot associate with such a place. I don't want my eyes looking in places where they should not be. I don't want my wife and my children to be there. And I don't think it's profitable to encourage sexual lust when we're celebrating marriage. I mean, think about that. Those two are inconsistent with each other. We're celebrating marriage. And Jesus says, whoever looks on a woman to lust commits adultery already in his heart. So you're encouraging adultery before you even say, I do. You think the pastor lives in some bubble that's untouched by the temptations you face in this world? Think again. Listen, I was faced with a very difficult situation. Do I keep my mouth shut and suffocate my biblical convictions, grieving and quenching the spirit? Or do I stay true to my biblical convictions, come what may, showing my wife and my children that I love Jesus more than my family, I love Jesus more than my comfort, and I love Jesus more than other people's feelings? They could have asked me to leave. We're going to find somebody else. Don't you know the ripple effects? How, you know how family gossips. Oh, guess what Casey didn't do? Guess how much of a Bible thumper he is? He's not even strong enough to go to this restaurant. Come on, church. Jesus does not give special permission to compromise when it comes to our family. Jesus does not give us free passes to live sloppy before the eyes of those we are physical family members with. Jesus says loving him often includes being misunderstood, slandered, mocked, avoided, and hated by our own family members. But so be it. One day we're going to stand before Christ, not before our family members. We need to think about this question. And then question number five. 
Question number five, did Jesus ever offend others? I don't know why you're laughing. Did Jesus ever offend others? We can't go because we might offend. Did Jesus ever say things to others that were disagreeable to the beliefs and practices of others? Well, Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? What did Jesus say? Jesus had just charged the Pharisees with being hypocrites for transgressing the commandment of God through their tradition. Jesus charged the Pharisees with being unregenerate, vain worshipers of God. If anyone ripped anyone at any time, it was that time. Jesus ripped them up and down, reproving and rebuking very strongly. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, Jesus, don't you know that you just hit the bee's nest? Don't you know you just upset them? Don't you know that this is going to end up on good morning Israel? Don't you know that such words are not appropriate in our woke society? Don't you know that people will think ill of you? Don't you know that people will believe you're a hate-filled preacher? Do you know what Jesus says in response to his disciples? He answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. How's that for? He gets us. When the disciples said, Jesus, don't you know that you offended the Pharisees? Jesus does not run back to the Pharisees and say, I'm sorry for hurting your feelings. Give me a hug. Jesus does not say, please forgive me. I will never say that again. Let me bow down to you and wash your feet. He said in so many words, what I said is true. They are blind. They are goats. They are harming others by their hypocritical, self-righteous, unbiblical ways. And I'm going to call it out for what it is. Because I love them. Love them? Yes. I love them. Therefore, I'm going to warn them of the danger that they are in. Did Jesus ever offend others? Well, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and get back to me on that one. Question number six. Well, shouldn't we become all things to all men that we might win some? Have you heard this? Shouldn't we become all things to all men that we might win others to Christ? Well, if you honestly study that phrase, quoted by Paul, that's often taken out of context, if you study it in the context of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, you will find that it doesn't mean that we should sin with others so that we can share Christ with others. In fact, it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It's in 1 Corinthians 5.11 where Paul says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. 
It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are all the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. In the very same text that people want to say, we should become all things to all men so that we might win them, Paul says, come out from among them and be ye separate. We are to seek to win the world to Christ. And sometimes this includes denying ourselves the various liberties that we have in Christ. But nowhere in Scripture do we find that Jesus, the prophets, or the disciples sought to win the world by becoming like the world. Nowhere do we find them sinning so that they might save. We find the opposite. We find them seeking to live a pure, holy, godly, separated life. And it's that which won the day. This world does not need compromising Christians. This world needs consecrated Christians. And then the seventh and final question that I want to set before you is the popular, commonly misunderstood, emotionally triggered question. Well, what about love? What about love? Love is love. Should Christians attend an LGBTQ wedding? What about love? God is love. Jesus wants us to love. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love. Paul said, Without charity, without love, we are nothing. You Bible-believing people preaching love but not showing love. What about love? Here's my answer. What about it? What about it? God is love. But he's also a God of truth. Jesus was filled with grace while at the same time being filled with truth. Jesus wants us to love others, but he expects us to love him first. Paul did say, without charity we are nothing, yet in the same exhortation, he is strongly rebuking the Corinthian believers for living contrary to God's word. This is so ironic. I find it very ironic that we use 1 Corinthians 13 as some sappy, emotional, sin-tolerating proof text. When read in its whole context, we find it to be one of the strongest rebukes to a group of people acting foolishly. <laughs> Here they are acting self selfish. They're proud. They're arrogant. And Paul drops a bomb on them. 1 Corinthians 13. What about love? The Bible says we ought to speak the truth in love. Philippians chapter 1, our opening text, God tells us that we are to be equally filled with love and discernment. The Bible encourages us to love the sinner while reproving their wayward ways. God loves you, right? Did He send His Spirit to convict you and to reprove you of righteousness and judgment to come? Is that loving? Yes. 
So as it pertains to our question of attending an unbiblical mirage, we must understand clearly that there is absolutely nothing loving about ignoring, pretending, or affirming a person in their sin. You would agree that God loves. Do you know how many times God threatens to judge those who are disobeying His commandments? Do you realize that Jesus came preaching repentance from sin? When the woman in adultery was brought to Jesus, what did Jesus say to her? He said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, carry on with your wicked ways. Go and sin no more. When Jesus approached the Samaritan woman at the well, he didn't pat her on the head and say, you do you. He confronted her with her sinful lifestyle. I know that you've been around the block and that you have a reputation and the one you are now with is not your husband. How's that for love? You see how our thinking has been so poisoned by the world? We've been led to believe that love just accepts everyone and everything. We've been led to believe that love just tolerates. Love stays quiet. That's not love. Actually, that's hate. That's selfishness. It's hateful to see your neighbor's house on fire and know that they are inside and do nothing. It's hateful to see someone playing on the highway and not warn them of the danger that is approaching. It's hateful to know that the bottle of liquid somebody puts to their lips is poison, but because you're afraid to offend, you keep quiet. You want to talk about love? Robert Murray McShane says, quote, A man who loves you the most is the man who tells you the most truth about yourself. Amen. The man who loves you the most is the man who is courageous enough to tell you the most truth about yourself. How do we respond to the LGBTQ community? We speak the truths of God in love unashamedly. Now, this is not to say that we are to be rude, nasty, or hateful in our demeanor. This is not to say that we are to purposely try to offend Purposely try to stir things up online. But this is to say that we speak what is true with a heart of compassion and we leave the results up to God. Jesus was the most bold, courageous, straightforward preacher this world has ever known. But he was never uncompassionate or malicious. In fact, when the sons of thunder said, Jesus, I think you should call down fire on our enemies. It was Jesus who said, you do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. We can love others without associating with their sinful acts. And we must maintain a heart of compassion for those who've been blinded by sin, blinded by Satan. We need to maintain that heart of compassion and speak the truth because only the truth can set them free. Listen, this world is going to pressure us to bow to their ideologies and practices. And we find this truth displayed in Daniel chapter 3. This world is going to threaten us 
not to speak in the name of Christ. We find this in Acts chapter 4. And if we do speak biblical truth, this world just might persecute us or kill us. We find this truth emphasized in the deaths of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. But we must come to the point where we say, so be it, if that's the will of God. We must, we must, we must strive to remain faithful to God, even if it means being understood by men and hated by our own family. Like everything in life, we must let God's word be the primary influence of our decision-making, not the feelings, opinions, or responses of others. And I clearly understand that the problem regarding these things is not in the knowing of what is right, but having the courage and conviction to do what is right when most people are not. And that's where prayer comes in. We go to God's Word, developing our biblical convictions, and then we go to the Lord in prayer, begging Him to give us the grace and strength to do what is right, come what may. And this is the disciples in Acts chapter 4. The disciples met, praying that God would grant them boldness to speak God's word when others threatened them to bow down to their desires. And the disciples said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Well, times are changing, Pastor. That may be. But God's word never changes.